We are, I think if I counted this right, we are more than halfway through Job. So yay, go team. Well, I mean, not just chapter-wise, but I mean how the chapters break down sermon-wise. I think we're more than halfway. I was actually looking at it going, oh, oh, we're almost there. So if I'm not mistaken, it's either the second or third week of September is when we'll actually finish this, which seemed like a really long time ago, a few weeks ago, but or a really long time away a few weeks ago, but it's August. When did that happen? And I'm serious. When, when did that happen? Somebody keeps moving my calendar, and I don't know who it is. All right. This week... Eliphaz returns for a third time. (sighs) Now, I asked you last week, why? I mean, at some point, doesn't the wisdom of the prophets simply read have to kick in? Any of you have any idea who simply read is? If you don't know me by now, you will never, ever, ever know. You know who I'm talking about. Hey, I'm almo- I almost have a note, all right? <laughs> it's out there somewhere. I just don't know how to find it. But, I mean, in all honesty, at what point do you look at Job and go, um, this is wasting our time. We're not getting anywhere. And instead, we're going to keep running into the brick wall. We're just going to do it harder and faster than last time. And that's kind of where Eliphaz is. If at first you don't succeed, yell at someone. That's always a good motto of life, right? No, no, it's a ter- <laughs> Don't throw your wife under the bus. That is not helpful. <laughs> there you go. Now, second idea for today. This is, this is important. There's not a whole lot new going on in this chapter, but that's because at the end of the day, as I tell you, Ecclesiastes is always in effect, right? There is nothing new under the sun. But realize that doesn't just extend to the bad ideas. That also extends to the good ideas. And what I mean by that is one of the complaints that gets leveled, I mean, I know none of you would ever do this, but one of the complaints that gets leveled against what we do on a Sunday morning, because if you don't know, what we do on a Sunday morning is odd. (laughs) We start in a book, we work through it until the end, and then we start another one, and we work through it until the end, and we, we are the minority of churches. It's intentional, But one of the complaints that's leveled against this style of working through Scripture is that it gets a little boring on occasion. I know you don't experience that, but not everyone is as blessed with as entertaining a pastor as you are. So, (laughs) so, so you can you can add to your prayers for the evening the things that you're thankful for. (laughs) Sorry, I got myself tickled. I'm 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 not going to be of any use to anyone today, (laughs) but. The reason why that is the case is because you do get a repetition of ideas. Because let's be honest, there aren't really a whole lot of new ways to sin, are there? I mean, it's kind of the same problems over and over again. Well, when the child keeps punching his sibling, do you finally go, okay, it's time for you to eat your Brussels sprouts. Like, well, well, how does that help? I don't know. He just he needs to eat his Brussels sprouts. They're good for him. Yeah, but he punched his sister. Yeah, but he needs to eat his Brussels sprouts. No, 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 no. See, you're missing the point. You're giving me something that's good, but that's not actually solving the problem. Your Bible kind of operates in the same manner. It's not going to tell you to eat your Brussels sprouts when your problem is you're arguing with your neighbor. It's going to deal with why are you arguing and what's the problem. So you get a lot of the same teaching because you have a lot of the same problems because guess who the stubborn ones are? It's us, and we keep getting the good advice and getting the wise teaching, and we keep doing the same dumb thing. What's the rule? Don't do dumb dumb things. Always. So God reveals. God corrects. We twist. 
we contort, we lie, we get to go over the same things again. Part of the blessing of that is, I, I joked in Sunday school that, you know, I've, I've, I've that I've joked before at home, be like, did anybody listen to me when I preached on Sunday? Because it's like, I'll be in the house on Tuesday and I'm looking at the problems and I'm going, I, literally, I just did this, I just covered this. And sometimes I'm talking to the children and sometimes I'm talking to me. <laughs> well, that's one of the blessings because if I don't remember everything that I say exactly the way I say it, you know who else doesn't? Any of you guys. So it's good that we kind of get to retrace our steps and hammer some ideas home because that makes us better Christians. If we have all of this wonderful knowledge, but we have it about yay deep. Now, there's a benefit to that on occasion, is there not? You know just enough to be dangerous, you know enough to keep yourself out of trouble, but is there not also the benefit to having half of that knowledge, but having it in a way that it actually impacts you and makes a difference in your life? That's what we're going for. So we won't get to everything, but we'll get to a lot of things. Now, I'll go ahead and warn you in advance before we dive in. Um, as much as we were able, and I, I'm losing track here. I'm starting, okay, yeah, I thought so. As much as we were able to give Zophar credit last week, I'm starting to lose track of who's arguing with who after a while. As much as we were able to give Zophar credit for getting some things right, um, Eliphaz isn't going to give that to us. So you're, you've, you've been warned, all right? So let's dive in and see what happens, all right? So for uh, chapter 22, let's start at verse 1. It always is, right? Eliphaz the Temanite responded, can a vigorous man be of use to God, or a wise man be useful to himself? Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous, or profit if you make your ways perfect? Is it because of your reverence that he reproves you, that he enters into judgment against you? All right, we're going we're gonna to time out right here. <sighs> Eliphaz has decided to choose violence this day. And he has decided to choose this through sarcasm. Now, does sarcasm have its place in life? I actually think it does, as someone who is a little sarcastic on occasion. Yeah, I know you can't believe that ever would occur, but as someone who uses sarcasm on occasion, there, I think there is an actual place for it. I think Paul uses it. I think you can make an argument for borderline cases when Jesus uses it. I think it's useful that you can kind of get someone to kind of snap out of the way that they're thinking. I'm not sure that the depressed, suicidal man scraping his boils with his pottery that has been destroyed by God is the dude who needs to hear sarcasm. I'm just going to go out on a little bit of a limb here and say that this is probably not helpful. Now, beyond not being helpful, it's also very revealing of both the problem of Job and the problem of Eliphaz. Now, Let's tackle Eliphaz first. Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous or profit if it makes your ways perfect? Is it because of your reverence that he reproves you that he enters into judgment against you? So this is Eliphaz's problem. Automatically assumes that what Job is experiencing is judgment, is a punishment and penalty for sin. There's, that is the assumption. There is nothing that will shake it. This is, what looks, this is what invincible ignorance looks like. He is convinced he is wrong, but he is convinced that he is right. Therefore, there, you will do nothing and accomplish nothing in changing his mind. That's Eliphaz's problem. But the other problem is as it relates to Job. Is there actually benefit if you're righteous? Well, yes! Yes, I would argue there's immense benefit 
for you walking righteously. Isn't this kind of the entire point of the instruction of your Bible? When you live according to the precepts of God, does not life generally work better? Yes. Now notice there's a lot of qualifications in there. Is everything going to go perfect all the time? No, nobody's asking for it. Job is a beautiful example of this. But overall, if you follow the world the way that God has ordained it and the way that he has explained that you should follow it, in general, your life will go better than if you follow the world according to the world's standards. And maybe I should phrase that better so it doesn't sound so confusing. So let's rewind that for a second. If you live in the world following God's standards as opposed to living in the world following the world's standards, does that make better sense? Rather than me tie everybody in a mental knot here. I mean, this is, I mean, go to one of the prophets, Hosea. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is one of the things we've mentioned before, but it bears repeating right here. One of the reasons why the prophetic call of the Old Testament is what it is, is not because God is suddenly doing a new thing. He is calling Israel back through the prophets to the right understanding and foundation of who and what they are supposed to be. So this is one of the reasons why it's not going to be cheating for us to kind of move forward and read some of the prophets. Job should be the end of the understanding. Okay, let's, let's say this cleanly. Job, the book of Job, should be the end of the idea that if you do well, you will only receive blessing, and if you do poorly, you will only receive cursing. I mean, there's literally an entire book of the Bible written to refute this idea. Has it gone away? Has that idea gone away? Do we not have entire, you ready for the offensive part, Christian ministries built upon the well, if you do this, God will bless you. If you send us $29.95, we will send you, you know, wood from the Holy Land so that you can, you know, build an ashtray out of it or whatever it is you're going to do with it, and then God will bless you. You, you, you yeah, you've never known. It, it, it's, it's a love offering. It's a gift. <laughs> and, it's, and, it's always, and it's always like $24.95, you know, it's not, which minus shipping and handling. <laughs> for, for your love offering of, anyway. Why do we have these ministries? Because there's nothing new under the sun and we need this wisdom so that we can confront them. So that we can literally go, there's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to this. And the saddest part is I've actually seen, well, I've actually watched and listened to sermons where they've tried to go through Job like in mass, big picture. And you know what the, the conclusion of the book of Job is? Obviously, that if you follow God, he'll double your, your, your possessions. Like how much of the book do you have to ignore to get that punchline? And yet, this is what passes for biblical wisdom in our world. So in other words, we need to slow down. We need to take the correctives. We need to see what the problem is, which again, you see something like this. How do you respond to Eliphaz? This is one of the things you should be thinking through. Not, not because you get to tell Eliphaz, although one day I hope you'll get to sit there and argue with him and call him a nitwit in heaven, but <laughs> I think Eliphaz makes it. I have no idea. But you do need to be thinking through when this folly, when this error comes to you, how do you respond to it? Because this error hasn't gone away. This error, this lie of the world hasn't died at the end of this book. It has continued on, and it is still breathing and multiplying in our modern world. So you need to think through these things. All right, here's the closest we're going to get to good news. You ready? It starts in verse 5. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? What have we wanted this whole time? 
if you were, if you're following the conversation between um, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and Job, and Job keeps saying, I'm righteous and I haven't done anything wrong. And the three friends keep saying, you're a dirty, rotten sinner and you've done something wrong and that's why God's judged you. And Job says, nah, and they say, uh-huh, and you get it from there. At some point, don't you need some adult in the room to go, if you're going to continually accuse the man of sin, what do you have to do? You have to actually say what the sin is. We've made it 22 chapters. What's been the accusation against Job? You're a bad person. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. That's, that has been 20-some-odd chapters of this book. <laughs> Finally, don't ask me what that was. Sorry, I exhaled and inhaled at the same time. That's an accomplishment right there. Finally, we are going to get a rundown of sin. Yay, here we go. You have taken pledges of brothers without cause and stripped men naked, so he's stolen. To the weary, you have given no water to drink, and from the hungry, you have withheld bread. He's just evil. But the earth belongs to the mighty man, and the honorable man dwells in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. Therefore, snares surround you, and sudden dread terrifies you. Darkness so that you cannot, cannot see, and an abundance of water covers you. Okay, we finally have some accusations. You mistreat the poor, you rob, you're just a general, you're basically the Grinch, okay? There, that's, that's a good summary right there. You are the Old Testament version of the Grinch. Now, is that true? No. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. This is why I say Job has a problem with how he sees the world, and his three friends have a problem with how, it see, with how they see the world. And the other issue that comes out of this is what everybody seems to forget is that they need to sit down, think through this, and base their understandings of who they are and what they're doing upon God. I've said before that Christian community is needed. It was needed here. The problem is Job's not getting it. It's still needed, but that Christian community has got to, got to be based upon Scripture. It must be based upon the wisdom of God. If it turns out to be based upon me, you're doomed. You are doomed. You are done for because I'm an idiot, okay? Don't ask my wife. She might agree with me. <laughs> this would be the one time I'd blindly ask, what? And they'd be like, yeah, sure, whatever he said. <laughs> You don't want my ideas. The minute I no longer can back up what I'm telling you from Scripture is the minute you should stop listening to me. Regardless of how smart I think I am, you want God's wisdom. You want God's teaching. That's why I always joke with you, oh, we're off the notes, we're around the podium, be prepared. Because if you are ever getting wisdom that is not based upon Scripture, pop quiz, what should you do? Throw things and run screaming from the room, right? You're in a church and, you know, they, they start quoting to you something other than a Bible verse or you don't need your Bible when you go to church. Throw things, run screaming from the room. You will be better off and you do that as a warning to others. Half of them will go, what is their problem? You can't save everybody. The minute we get away from God's wisdom is the minute we are in shaky, shaky ground. I mean, that's literally what the song tells you, right? All other ground is sinking sand. This becomes a problem. That's true of my teaching. It's true of your teaching. Look, this is why, fun little example, okay? One of the things that I promised Cameron that I would never do with our children, you ready for this one? You're going to laugh at this one. I'm never going to make them apologize. 
because it's pointless. It's utterly pointless. Now, if you made your kids apologize, I'm not calling you a bad parent. I'm just giving you my perspective. Your mileage may vary. Terms and conditions may apply. Okay, you know how this goes. Why not? Because I don't care about changing the action in that regard. I want to change the problem with the action which was found in the heart. I want, if you apologize, it's because you've done something wrong and you have recognized that you have done something wrong. Now, if you think you can teach that for making them apologize, then make them apologize. God bless you. I'm not fighting with you about it, okay? I'm taking a different tact on that. Why? Because I think that's an outworking of biblical wisdom. I think it's an understanding that I'm not going to make you lie to somebody because you're not really sorry. If you're not sorry, say you're not sorry, and at least then we can deal with that problem. And we'll know who you are and what you are and why you are, and then we can actually deal with what the underlying issue is. Because believe me, you were a kid once, and you'd be like, now go up there. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. Mm. Doesn't everybody feel so much better? Don't you feel like something was accomplished? <laughs> now again, this is thinking through based on what are you doing and why are you doing it? Do you have biblical wisdom? Are you thinking through this from a perspective of changing the heart that leads to a change of behavior? If you're not, then evaluate. If you have and you disagree with me, God bless you. Have fun. Go for it. But I want you to make sure you're doing that work. You're thinking through not just basic things. that I've, I've told you my most annoyed phrase growing up. I moved from urban New England to rural southeastern United States. You want to talk about a mild culture shock in, in 1990? And I encountered a phrase I had never heard before in my life. Well, this is the way we've always done it. I didn't know what to do with that because I wasn't taught like that and I didn't live like that. And to this day, when you say that, it makes me go, because I don't care if this is the way you've always done it. I want you to justify why this is the way you've always done it. Because if you can't justify why this is the way you've always done it, and there's a better way to do it, what should you do? You should do it that way. <laughs> that should be true in your life every single day. You should be thinking, evaluating, not falling into bad patterns. Again, what's the pull of the world? It's just, and what happens? You're walking along, and all of a sudden you just do this number. That's just subtle because you're not thinking. You're not evaluating. But what are you doing? We're walking towards Denny. That's always a bad idea. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so you have to be careful and wise. This is not wise. This is assuming. This is taking your worldview and just automatically applying it and then declaring, I'm right. Why? Because I'm me. And this is the, everyone knows this, therefore it must be true. So we'll continue. Verse 12. Is not God in the height of heaven? Look also at the distant stars, how high they are. You say, what does God know? Can he judge through the thick darkness? Clouds are a hiding place for him so that he cannot see. And he walks on the vault of heaven. Will you keep to the ancient path which wicked men have trod, who were snatched away before their time, whose foundations were washed away by a river? They said to God, depart from us, and what can the Almighty do to them? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see and are glad, and the innocent mock them, saying, truly our adversaries are cut off, and their abundance the fire has consumed. Now, this is a direct argument against what Job was arguing in the previous chapter. And since I know you don't remember exactly what Job said in the previous chapter, we'll read it real quick. This is Job's complaint. Why do the wicked still live? 
continue on and become very powerful. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and the rod of God is not upon them. His ox mates without fail, his cow, his cow calves and does not abort. They send forth their little ones like the flock and their children skip about. They sing to the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity and suddenly they go down to the grave. Now, here we go. Job's complaint. I look at the world and I see wicked people prospering. Bad people being blessed by God. Eliphaz says, I look at the world and I see bad people being judged. Sin getting its due justice in this world and good things happening to the people who are righteous and bad things happen to the people who are not righteous. Now let's stop for a second. Wise Christian, which one of them is right? <laughs> see, I'm with Job on this one. I look at the world and I don't see a whole lot of hellfire and brimstone. Not nearly as much as I'd be sending anyway. I mean, right? let's be honest. If they gave you the brimstone button, how many times a day would you have pushed it? Be honest. Be honest. <laughs> you, you'd be like that. What's that cartoon about the, the monkey's paw thing? Or, or That's not the monkey paw. Like, if you have to hit the button, but you get a million dollars and someone you don't know dies. There was a whole movie about this concept and a cartoon picked on it. And they went, someone I don't know? Yes. And they're hitting the button. <laughs> I mean, you'd, if you had the hellfire and brimstone button like the nuclear football, you'd be doing what in the morning? What? They did what? Okay. What? Traffic is bad? What? They argued with me? But God doesn't do this. Now, again, Christian, because we're looking towards eternity, we know that his justice will stand. We know that his righteousness will be in eternity. But that does mean that we look about the world now and we see the unrighteous prospering. We see the righteous people who are trusting him not living their best life now. I couldn't help myself. I just, I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> we see them dealing with difficulties in trials and struggles. I'm with Job on this one. Now, here's the really, really important question, Christian. Why? Why is that the case? That's the thing that needs to be answered. And I think the answer to that is how you actually encourage Job, because it's how the New Testament would encourage you through any of your trials. It's an understanding that you are not living for here. Let's borrow some New Testament language. You are supposed to be taking up your cross, dying to yourself, recognizing that your citizenship is in heaven, that you're, that you're oh, my word just went right out of my head. Salvation, there you go. The word I want is salvation. Oh, wow. That your salvation is secured for you in Christ and reserved for you in heaven, where Christ is seated, where God dwells, where his justice reigns. In other words, your hope is supposed to be beyond. Why? Because this place is populated with who? Sinners. sinners. And sinners do what? <laughs> Amazing how that works out. Again, I, I, I've told you this before, but it might, I don't think I've told this in a while, so it'll be worth it. I was helping a church with a uh, Wednesday night program, and they had they had overexpanded on a um, on a van and bus ministry. I couldn't decide if I wanted to say bus or van first, and I picked neither. So they had a uh, bus slash van ministry, and they would go out and pick up kids and bring them in on a Wednesday. The problem is no one was vetting it. No one was overseeing it. So what was happening is these two 15-passenger vans were both making multiple trips out and coming back full with kids. 
we didn't have contact information for all of them. Like, the person driving the van knew the parents, and the parents were like, yeah, it's fine. I'm like, that's not going to fly. We can't keep doing that, people. I inherited this program. I didn't do it. <laughs> and the other problem was half of them didn't want to be there. It was just a way to get them out of the house. Nothing bad's going to happen to them at a church. They'll be all right. And so what I was getting was complaints from these teachers who have third and fourth and fifth graders. And they're like, I can't get anything done because I have a handful of kids who want to learn and they want to do their scripture memorizations and they want to hear the Bible story. And then I got 10 kids over here who just, they don't care. They don't listen and they run around and they don't pay attention and they're just doing, and like, so you have non-church kids and you're surprised they're not acting like church kids. And she goes, well, yeah, now that you say that. I said, so you have pagan children, and the pagans are acting like pagans. But they're third graders. I'm like, does that make them not sinners? Did I miss a meeting? And she's like, this makes sense. (laughs) She she just didn't want to think about children that way. But if you don't think about people that way, you start looking at the behavior and going, what do I do? You apply biblical wisdom. Long story short, um, I was the bad guy. I was like, no, parents have to come to church, sign up before they can get in the van with contact information and emergency contacts and like food allergies. And we went from like 60 kids on vans to like 30. And it was manageable and we could learn and we could teach something. And then I was gone. <laughs> I was like, get me out of here. So anyway. Well, it wasn't just about the numbers. It was about, we, we convinced ourselves that we're doing the most good by just getting the most people. It's a mile wide, and it's an inch deep. Sometimes you're doing the most good by taking the kids who actually want to be there and investing in them and devoting time to them. And that's where wisdom comes into play, which is what we're not seeing because, again, we're taking our worldview that's not based upon Scripture, and we're trying to impart it to our world. Anytime you do that, you've started in the wrong place. Now, Eliphaz does get one good thing here, mostly, until the very, very end. So you ready? So let's finish off chapter uh, 22 here. Yield now and be at peace with him. Thereby good will come to you. Please receive instruction from his mouth and establish his words in your heart. This is the beginning of a call for, go back one. This is the beginning of a call from Eliphaz to Job for repentance. And it's a good call. I would agree. This is what you would tell to the person that that is stuck in their sin. They should turn. I mean, this is Philippians 2. God highly exalted Christ, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Always remember we have two options here. You either will acknowledge God's sovereign rule in his judgment, or you will acknowledge his sovereign rule in your repentance and faith. What are we rooting for? That you'll do so in repentance and faith. So this is good. Let's keep going. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove unrighteousness from your tent. This is also good. This would be your Proverbs 3. Um, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. This is good. As you have repented and trusted in God, you should now build your life upon what? The wisdom that God has provided. All right? Place your gold in the dust, the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks, then the Almighty will be your gold. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, no, I'm in the right spot. And choice silver to you. I keep skipping a line here and I'm messing myself up. The Almighty will be your gold and choice silver to you. This is also good. Should your trust be in your wealth and your riches? 
No, as the New Testament will tell you, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is where we started with, right? Lifting your eyes up, understanding that you are living for a place that is to come, setting your mind and your heart there. This is, we're, we're doing good so far. For then you will delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Yes, yes you will. As you have forsaken the things of this world, as you have trusted in him for salvation, as you are living for him, you will have peace and joy in this world because the things that would steal your peace and your joy can't because they are found hidden in God. (sighs) Okay, you've been warned. You will pray to him and he will hear you. You will pay your vows. You will decree a thing, and it will be established for you, and light will shine on your ways. When you are cast down, you will speak with confidence in the humble person he will save. He will deliver one who is not innocent, and he will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. We were doing so good, weren't we? We we were doing so good. If you do all of these things, then when you follow God, he'll do all of these wonderful things for you. And all of those people around you will see your good works, and your good works will be a salvation unto them. (sighs) We were this close, and then we missed it. Why? Broken understanding of the world. Trying to understand God based upon how you see this place. Christian, do you understand God based on how you see the world, or do you understand the world based upon how you see God? Those two things matter because those two things are supposed to be put in the right order so that your right perspective is maintained in this place. So, to recap, Eliphaz is angry and sarcastic with Job. My pages are sticking together. (laughs) Sorry about that. Eliphaz is sarcastic and angry. He is trying to run down a fake litany of sins and then told Job because you have done these things that I have just made up you need to repent so that God will then bless you in this world and other people will be blessed by you in this world other than that we're doing real good so if you're Job do you now sit there and go ah I have now seen the folly of my ways as you have told me the same thing for the seventh time I shall follow your wisdom until the very end do you think that's what Job's going to say next Smart one right there. Then Job replied, chapter 23, Even today my complaint is rebellion. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Now that's interesting because in spite of the terrible advice, who does Job still trust in to lift him up? He still trusts in God's righteous judgment. Part of the reason Job wants a hearing is because he is convinced that if I stand before God, I will be not guilty. Now, what in past history would lead Job to believe such a thing? One, why is Job blameless and upright? Once again, does that mean Job is perfect and sinless? No, no, it does not. Two, let's go back in history. I always like this story because this is one of those stories that... um, 
we get the main point, but we gloss over some of the details. And, and you know me, I like bringing out the little details. So Genesis chapter 4. This is after Cain has killed Abel. God has judged Cain for this action. Remember what his judgment's going to be? Never going to settle. You're going to wander the earth. You get basically get to, get to be the dude from Kung Fu just without any of the good stuff. Nobody got that joke. Oh, that's so painful. <laughs> it's okay. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. That's a legitimate complaint. You've been cursed by God. You have no family. You have no tribe. You have no settlement. You have nothing. Do you want to live in that world connected to no one? Because I don't. There, I'm sorry. So the Lord said to him, Whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. I always love, do you know what Cain does next? So his punishment, you're supposed to be a wanderer upon the earth, disconnected from society. Do you, do you know what Cain does next? He, he settles someplace and builds a city and has a family. See, that's one of those things where you have to sit down and think and go, okay, there's something going on here with the just judge in that there is actually justice. There is actually mercy, though, as well. There is an understanding that repentance doesn't just come at the end of a lash, but it comes at the end of an understanding of the love of God. It's one of the reasons why Paul will tell you in, in Romans 2, it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. What should Cain have received? I mean, immediately, the smiting button, right? What does he get? A family and a city. Now, does that mean his sin is overlooked? No. Does that mean his sin is upheld as a righteous thing? Absolutely not. But it does mean that there is a mercy from God being shown. If you're Job, even though you think this is judgment from God, the reason you want a hearing is because I just know that if I stand before God and I plead my case, the just and merciful judge will look at me and grant pardon. There is a mercy. This is one of the reasons why you're still seeing that double-mindedness with Job. This is the Holy Spirit dragging him along. Come on, you know, back of the neck, scraping him through the sand. Because what you're seeing is the pain, the anger, the hurt of this world being softened and chiseled down by the work of the Holy Spirit and the mercy of God upon his life. This is what this looks like. It doesn't look like perfection. It doesn't look like you getting every answer immediately. It looks like you wrestling with things. And a good godly counsel would have helped Job with that wrestling by doing what? Giving him good advice and shaving down those hardened edges a little bit faster. This is what the, God, the gospel community is supposed to do. Spurring on one another in their good works. This is what Hebrews 10 is talking about. Why you're told not to forsake the assembling of saints. It's not go to church or you're going to die. It's go to church so that you can be around fellow Christians. So that you can encourage one another. So that you can lift one another up. So that you can carry forward the work. So that you can bear one another's burdens until the final day of redemption. So Job, immediately after this great statement of trust, says, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns to the right, I cannot see him. So Job feels abandoned. Okay, fun time here. Is Job abandoned? No. How do you know that? 
how do you know that Job has not been abandoned by God? See, this is an understanding of who God is and realizing that you're supposed to be building your life on that knowledge. So one, I've told you this before. One of, my, uh, one of my favorite things to read at funerals is a bit of a comfort for families. It comes from Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If, my, if I make my bed in the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Why do I like that for funerals? Um... You ever sadder than when you've lost a loved one? You ever more tempted to turn to yourself alone and to forsake wisdom from God when you, other than when you're in pain? Read that and be reminded of what? That even in this dark pain, even in these hard times, God sees. God knows. He has not, for, he has not forgotten. He is still leading. It's the building on of the 23rd Psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. You are protecting me. You are guiding me. It's a reminder. This is what Job should be receiving. Yes, yes, Job, yes. You know that your Redeemer lives. You know that you will see him. You know that the judge is just and merciful. Therefore, recognize that he hasn't forgotten you and that this difficulty will pass and that this is not judgment, but that this is a mercy from God. And no, we don't know how that works right now, but there is something that we can prune, something that can be trimmed and know that at the end, when all of this is done, you will stand with that fulfilled blamelessness. You will stand in the glory of God and recognize that this is good. That's the comfort because it puts your focus where? Where it belongs off of you, off of this world, off of the idols and the sin that so easily entangles and places it rightly upon the work that God is finishing. And deep down, he knows it. But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the word of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique in who can turn him and what his soul desires that he does. For he performs what, he, what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. Therefore I would be dismayed at his presence when I consider I am terrified of him. It is God who has made my heart faint and the Almighty who has dismayed me. But I am, I am not silenced by the darkness nor deep gloom which covers me. Job hasn't been forgotten by God, and he knows he hasn't been forgotten by God. He can look at the things around him and know. Just what did he tell his wife? You speak as one of the foolish women. So shall we accept good from his hand and not evil? In other words, all of this has befallen me. Who did it? God did this. Job knows that, which means I can't sit here and say God did this, but he has forgotten and forsaken me. Well, well, nah, he just did this. Therefore, he is at work. And therefore, even though you trust in him, you don't like this, what should be the overriding thing? Again, what you know influencing how you live. This is the call from the prophets later on. I mean, this is Elijah at Mount Carmel, seeing all the prophets of Baal, seeing that he's the only one standing for Yahweh. What's the call to the people? Elijah came near and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. Best line is, what did the people do? 
the people did not answer him a word. I mean, if I'm right, why are you standing over there? If they're right, why are you standing over there? Pick one. And they all went, I don't want to. I want to see what happens first. Because they're not being guided by what they know. They want to see the show. They want to be changed. They want to be moved. They want all of the things that they want. What Paul talks about. Jews want signs and Greeks want wisdom or however it's phrased. What do we preach? Christ and him crucified. So, chapter 24. Why are times not stored up by the Almighty? And why do those who know him not see his days? Okay, question time. Job doesn't like timetables. And I don't mean he doesn't like having to learn his multiplication. I mean he doesn't like having to live in a world where God is in charge of the calendar, where God is in charge of the clock. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is we're looking at impatience because at the end of the day, what does God command? Better yet, what doesn't God command? Let's ask it that way. It's a shorter list, I think. <laughs> so if God's in charge of the times and you want them sped up, where's the problem lie? In you. Recognizing again that my Redeemer lives that I know I will see him at the end, that I know he has not forgotten me. I know that he is guarding me. I know that he is a just judge who will show me mercy. Therefore, I can persevere in this trial. I can bear up, as James 1 puts it. I can be refined like gold and silver, as Peter puts it. I can be the one that God has strengthened because he is the one who is strengthening. I can trust. I can rest knowing that the good work that he is doing will be accomplished. Do not let this one fact escape your notice. 2 Peter 3, when you know that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It's an idea built on the prophets. Isaiah told them what? My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In other words, Job's complaining, this is judgment. And God's going, no, it isn't. Why do they see it differently? Because one sees it like this. And one sees it like this. Christian, this is what you're trying to change about your life. This is why I'm trying to get you to challenge, to trying to challenge you to think about what you're doing and why you're doing, because I want you in your life to play the long game. It's the area we all struggle in, myself included. I get focused on the 17 things I've got to do now. I've got to get them done, and now when that starts happening, where's my life? Where's my entire focus? Why am I doing them in? More importantly, how am I doing them? It's a lesson we try to teach children. Send the kids. You ready? This is, this is their new job for the last several weeks. Dry the dishes and put them away. Do, do you know what ends up happening half the time? No, 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 because we tell them to do it, and they go in there and they start doing it. And after I've told them three times to quit goofing off and finish your job, then I have to go into the kitchen and find things because this is in the wrong place and that's in the wrong place. And you ask them, why did you put this in that drawer? I didn't know where it went, so I just put it somewhere. Okay, but now you have to do it again. What should you have done? Asked where it goes. Do you know how many times we had to ask, have that conversation before they would stop and go, where does this go? 
Now, how complicated is it to say, where does this go? But I've got to get this job done. Why? Because I want to go back to playing. I want to go back to watching this show. I want to go back to running around in the yard. I want to, go, I want to hurry up and get back to that. So I'm going to do this job and I'm going to do it poorly. And then I'm going to have to do it again. Christian, you've never done that in your life. You've never lived like that. You've never been in a hurry. And then you've never gone, it's all right. It doesn't matter. Who cares? Why not? Because what were you looking at? That's why we put blinders on horses. Why do you put a blinder on a horse? Because I don't want it to do what? Hey, what's over there? Because <laughs> we're going this way and we need to go this way in a hurry. You know what I don't want you to do? Try to see what's over there because that's going to slow down the process. This is one of those silly, um, this is a good sports analogy. Most annoying thing on the planet when you realize this, you will now be annoyed too when this happens if you watch football. But you do know that if you're running this way, so if I'm running this way, but I'm looking this way, I am going to slow down. You cannot make yourself run faster without looking where you're going. You can't do it. The minute you start looking from side to side or back, you will slow down. Now watch a football game. Humanity can't help themselves. Guy's running for a touchdown. What's he do? And then he gets caught from behind. Well, you wouldn't have been caught from behind if you didn't turn around and look at him. Just keep running. (laughs) I used to do this in baseball all the time. I used to tell my kids, you're on first. When you get to second base, don't go looking for the ball. I'm standing in this little white box right here. I'll either be yelling at you like this, or I'll be doing this like some drunken monkey, okay? As long as you do the thing that I'm telling you to do, I will never yell at you. When you start getting to second base and looking for the ball, and I'm screaming at you, you know who I'm now mad at? I'm now mad at you. Pick your eyes up, look where you're supposed to be going, and do that thing. I had a conversation with a kid at third base. He's like, look, if you do it and I told you not to do it, who am I going to be mad at? He goes, me. I said, if you do, if you do it and I told you to do it and you're out, who are you going to be mad at? Who am I going to be mad at? You. Who do you want me to be mad at? You or me? He goes, I want you to be mad at you. All right, then just do what I tell you. He's like, that works for me, coach. I'm like, hey, that's a win. Christian, welcome to your world. God's looking at you going, this is what you're supposed to do. Now what are you going to do? I'm going to do that thing. It didn't work out the way I wanted it to. doesn't matter. You were faithful. You were following rightly and trusting in the one who has set forward the path. Your eyes were off of the thing and looking out as to what was going on. You were thinking. You were evaluating. You were understanding. You were walking in trust, knowing that you're going someplace. This is what you're supposed to be doing. So, Job going to continue. Some remove the landmarks, they seize and devour flocks, they drive away the donkeys of the orphans, they take the widow's ox from a pledge item. From here to verse 12, Job questions justice, which I love because what did he just declare in the last chapter? That God is a just judge who will judge rightly. What does it look like when I lose focus on who God is and what he is doing and I start living for this world? It looks like what I know to be true now being a lie. What's the cure for that, Christian? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. It's James 1. So skip down to uh, 13, Sally. Uh, Others have been with those who rebel against the light. They do not want to know its ways nor abide in its paths. The murderer arises at dawn. He kills the poor and the needy, and at night he is a thief. 
The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, No one will see me. And he disguises his face. In the dark they dig into houses. They shut themselves up by day. They do not know the light, for the morning is the same to them as to him is thick darkness, for he's familiar with terrors of the thick darkness. In other words, people sin. Welcome to the planet, Job. Get in line. I mean, before the flood, why does God bring the flood? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God looks on Noah and his family and he says what? I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of his heart is evil only from his youth. <laughs> in, in other words, as long as you leave the people, what are you leaving? You're leaving the sin. Job's looking at the planet and he's actually seeing it rightly. But then the problem becomes he's now interpreting his life and everything that he's receiving based on that knowledge and he's forgetting what? What he knows to be true, he's allowing his pain, his loss to change. Mind is being corrupted by what the world is. This is what we guard against day in and day out. So, they are insignificant on the surface of the water. Their portion is cursed on the earth. They do not turn toward the vineyard. Drought and heat consume the snow waters. So does the grave, those who have sinned. A mother will forget him. The worm feeds sweetly till he is no longer remembered, and wickedness will be broken like a tree. He wrongs the barren woman and does no good for the widow, but he drags off the valiant by his power. Notice that the he there is capitalized. That's talking about God. He provides them with security, and they are supported, and his eyes are on their ways. They are exalted a little while, then they are gone. Moreover, they are brought low, and like everything gathered up, even like the heads of grain, they are cut off. Now, if it is not so, who can prove me a liar and make my speech worthless? Job just laid out more wisdom in those few verses than any of his friends have in all of their speeches. God will judge. Job is seeing this rightly, that the people do evil here, and it seems to work, but they get carted off. They get carried away. The judgment will be accomplished. God will bring all of these evil deeds to pass, and to, he will pass judgment upon them. He will set this correct. Now, Christian, this is why you're wary. This is where Ecclesiastes got it right, and Job and his friends got it wrong. Because Ecclesiastes asks all of the same questions, but it asks it from a better perspective in light of Job's wisdom. So Ecclesiastes looks and says, you work all your life, and then you'll have nothing. Or you work hard, and you didn't build anything, and then this lazy fool gets everything. Or you were smart, and you were good, and you built a business, and you were successful, and then you left it to your kid who can you know, barely count. And you were great, and you received nothing, and you were terrible, and you received everything. And all the pleasures of the flesh and all the lusts of the eyes don't satisfy for anything because I can't take any of it with me. That's basically Ecclesiastes um, 2 through 10, give or take. And what's the punchline of the book? When all is said and heard, fear God and keep his commandments, because he will bring every act, whether good or evil, to judgment. Christian, this is what we have to remember, not just in their lives, but in our lives. We're not afraid of the judgment because of the work of Christ. I understand that, and I'm not telling you to be. But what I am telling you to be is a person who stands based on a life lived following God. A person who stands, who has honored the work of Christ, who has been guided by the commitment and the building up of the Holy Spirit. So what Paul urged you to in chapter 12, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
and not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, as your mind is transformed by the work that the Holy Spirit has done upon your heart, that your actions would line up with who you now are in Christ. Why? So that God won't spank me. No, no. Because he has redeemed you and strengthened you and put you on the right path. You can now look at this and go, yes, yes. Oh my goodness, no, we don't want to go that direction. Let's go back to this one. I can see rightly. I can proclaim the mercies of him who reigns, of he who lives forever. I know what is good and it is right. How can I possibly reject it for something less? And then when I see my fellow brother, it went away. There we go. <laughs> it always does that, at least once a Sunday. You notice that? I go to point at it and it's just gone. Maybe I should try to switch sides on occasion. When I see this, I don't want to make your speech worthless. I don't want to prove you wrong because you're right. Sometimes life is miserable. Sometimes life is hard. But in God, the strength to overcome and the strength to live wisely is present. And in eternity, these temporary pains will be gone. And his righteousness is good. And his salvation abides. And we can trust in all that he has built us. That's where I am. That's part of what Job, excuse me, getting choked again. That's part of what Job has lost and what none of his friends can seem to point him to is Job. Why is your entire life built upon your family and your wealth and your health? That the loss of them shakes your faith in God and destroys any concept of righteousness. Hmm, if you have something and the loss of this something would make you angry with God, what would we call this something? It would be an idol. Yeah. What's the best thing a loving God could do to that idol? Destroy it. This is why what looks like a temporal evil is an eternal blessing. This is why understanding that the pains and the difficulties and the sufferings of here are not a judgment for those who are in Christ, but rather a pruning and a blessing for eternity because it is a demonstration that you need him, that you cannot accomplish and build up for yourselves, but need who he is and all that he has done, and that your trust cannot be placed in your wisdom or in your strength, or in your wealth, or in any other thing that you might put upon here, but that your help must be placed upon him and him alone. And in order to do that, what's got to happen? It's 1 Corinthians 2. You need the mind of Christ. How do you get it, Christian? By trusting in him. Having your heart changed, the heart of stone removed, and the heart of flesh put in, leading to a change of mind that then changes how you live in this world because you are now born again in him. This is a renewing process. Not that you get saved every day, but that you reevaluate how you live each and every day. I've said this before. It's, one of, it's a great quote. It's the Martin Luther's first of his 95 theses. When God talks about repentance, he means that the entirety of the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's a constant looking at this thing and going, no, that is not honoring to God. It's got to go. All right, good job, team. No, that is not honoring to God. This thing's got to go. All right, good job, team. No, that is not honoring to God. This thing has got to go. And continuing on, because now that we have seen rightly, we can trust that he will carry us through. And that in spite of all of you know, this stuff that we're wading through, that he still loves us. 
that he hasn't forgotten us and that he is strengthening us to bring us through to the final day. This is where our hope has to rest. This is what's being missed in the advice. How would you answer? Because how you would answer would determine how are you going to live when your difficulties come? How are you going to function and what is your faith going to be when your trials arise? I encourage you day by day, built upon Christ, knowing that he is bringing you forward because that way when they do come, you're resting in the right place. Let's pray.